you have a Bible with you, open it up to Colossians. If you don't have one, you can use the one in the pew in front of you. We'll be on page 1044. Uh, as always, if there's anything that strikes you uh, that we don't cover this morning, feel free to text your questions to the, the text number, uh, and we'll take a look at those when we're, when we're through this morning. All right, I'm going to pray real quick, and we'll get going. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has been preserved for us that uh, just the, the challenge that we have to look back to a different culture and a different people and a different situation um, is also just a testimony to the fact that um, so far removed from these original disciples, we are still walking in the steps of, of their, their work to proclaim the name of Jesus. And um, so much of this world and... Um, the, the lives that we live and the culture we inhabit and the things that we just take for granted are just, um, uh, just they are due to the fact that your church exploded onto the scene so long ago. And I, I just pray that we would um, situate ourselves in this moment of history, recognizing that we are uh, the latest in a long line of followers of Jesus. And I just pray that you would... Um, Speak to us this morning by the power of your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I want to do a little, uh, little participation here. So get ready. So husbands, I want to hear a good reason to buy flowers for your wife. Because you love her. Oh, just straight to the top. <laughs> What would be another good reason? Because she, she likes flowers. Good, yeah. Any others? <laughs> you messed up. Oh, okay, transitioning. What would be a bad reason to buy flowers for your wife? Because you messed up. <laughs> Why else? Ooh, good, yeah. Manipulation, that's a good one, yeah. Here, honey, I have something I need from you. <laughs> so today we're gonna hit this section of Colossians where Paul is gonna start talking about a certain set of practices. And, and as we get into it, um, it's kind of a confusing passage because we're continuing to read someone else's mail, right? Like the, Paul knows what he's talking about here. The Colossians know what he's talking about. Uh, but we are, are far enough away that we're not really quite sure what he's talking about. We have to do some extra work to figure it out. And, and even still, people much smarter than me have been fighting about what this text means for a long time. Paul's condemning something but we're not exactly sure. In general, we've talked about this a little bit, but this letter has been written to the Colossians to combat a heresy of, of what's called Jewish mysticism. This idea of, of certain uh, followers of the Jewish faith that were incorporating different supernatural elements and weird um, mystical things. They're kind of mixing and matching different parts of their culture and different religions. They're adding stuff to Jesus. They're still, they're still following Jesus. They would still call themselves Christians, but um, it, they're saying, you know, in order to really made, be made right with God, in order to really attain like a, a true spirituality, you need to add a bunch of stuff to your faith. And we know that this stuff was around at the time because of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you're unfamiliar, in the 1940s, there was a little boy throwing rocks in a cave and he hit a piece of pottery and that pottery broke and he went, wow, that's interesting. And he went in and he looked and he found all of these rolled up papyrus manuscripts from the, about a hundred years before the time of Jesus. And it was this huge discovery of what the uh, 
community around Israel was like back at that time around the life of Jesus. And, and they found copy after copy after copy of the Hebrew scriptures, but they also found all this really weird, mystical, kind of Jewish, kind of bizarre stuff. And so this was kind of a current of popular thought during Paul's time. Not, not everyone, not the like official religious leaders in Jerusalem that you might read about in the gospels, they weren't into this, but there were these sects of people that went off into the desert, ate magic mushrooms and, 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 and had a religious experience, right? And, and this was the kind of um, mysticism that we think was creeping in to the church at Colossae. And so we have to kind of read between the lines here, but we think that the false teachers are presenting things to the Colossians, most of which aren't bad things in and of themselves, but they're teaching them to practice these things for the wrong reasons. Just like giving your wife flowers to manipulate her, it might be a right action, but a really wrong reason. We're going to see some things in this text that might be good or bad or indifferent, but when they're practiced for the wrong reason, they get in the way of the gospel and they become really dangerous. So this morning, I want to take a look at two lies that the false teachers are telling the Colossians. And the the first one is, you're not doing it right. In, In your pursuit of Jesus, you're not doing it right. And the second one in your pursuit of Jesus, well, you're not even doing it at all. You're not doing it at all. And then after that, Paul is going to counter those lies with one word of truth, and that is that Christ did it for you already. So first of all, the, the false teachers are saying, hey, Colossians, you're not doing it right. So we read, because of the warning that Paul gave in the last section last week, about the sufficiency of Jesus. You remember, all everything that God is, is in Jesus. All that you need for life is found in Christ. Because of that, he says, therefore, in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. So someone or a group of someones in the Colossian church has brought in what looks like a set of Jewish rituals, food laws, calendar laws, laws about different holidays and different ways to celebrate the Sabbath. And they are judging the other Christians for how well they do or do not observe these rules. They're saying these these rituals, these rules, they're necessary for your relationship with Christ and you're not doing it right. And this idea of, of, of seeing someone's outward practice and deciding, judging them and saying, oh yeah, you're not really doing it right. That's a big problem for people, both, both inside the church and outside the church. Our outward practice becomes a litmus test for faithfulness, either faithfulness to Christ or faithfulness to some other worldview. Anytime I hang out with friends from Oregon, I'm, I'm just shamed at how little I care for the planet. Do you have friends like this where like, like they, have, they have a trash can and a recycling can and a compost can and then a stuff that doesn't go in any of those things can? And you look in their trash can and there's nothing in it because the planet and, and, I, 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 and, and they come over to my home and, and, and we have friends over and they go like, oh yeah, where's your like secondary, you know, carbon plastic egg shell recycling receptacle? Like, I don't have that. I just have a trash can. And then I feel bad. And they go, oh yeah, you should feel bad. You don't, you don't love the earth. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I'm just here in Idaho trying to figure it out. And, uh, you Oregonians, you've got us there. But it's easy to do with regard to practices that you've adopted, right? If you're a, if you're a recycler and there's nothing wrong with being that, like, like that's your deal. And you can look out at anyone who's not super interested in that and judge them. And it doesn't matter what it is. How do you school your children? Private school, public school, homeschool, no school, whatever, like, Whatever isn't your deal, you just kind of look at everybody and go like, oh, 
you don't really love your kids, do you? Or if you have little kids, you, you buy diapers for them. You know, diapers are made in China or whatever. I don't know. I don't even know what that ar- the state of that argument in 2022 is. Or you buy food that's not organic. Or maybe you only buy food that's organic. Whatever it is, like there's all these things that we have rattling around in our minds. They're like, oh, I'm just a little bit better than you because of the things that I do. But see, we're selective in our judgment, aren't we? See, I would never judge someone for not being a vegetarian because I'm not a vegetarian. There's this practice of like, what do you eat? And what do you drink? And what holidays do you celebrate? And how do you, how do you rest? And these false teachers are coming in and saying, oh, Colossians, you're not doing it right. So you, you aren't living up to the faith that Christ has delivered. One specific one he says is, is Sabbath. He says, don't, don't judge people about the Sabbath. And, and this is something that, that is, is a practice in our church. We are, we are uh, Christians who worship on Sunday, but many of us through things that we've read and, and experiences we've had and um, different influences have, have recognized that like as an American culture, we do not rest well. And so maybe something about Sabbath that comes from the scripture is valuable. And, and many of us, I've talked to many of you, like have incorporated the rhythm of Sabbath back into your life where on Friday night, you have a special meal with your family and you shut off your phones. And, and Joanna and I do this terribly poorly, but we try to do it as well to just kind of reset our week. And that's a good thing if that's your rhythm, but if you look at others who like, oh, you don't do that. You, you do yard work on Saturday. That's the Sabbath, right? Like Paul says, don't judge people like that. Just because the rhythms that they have are different than the ones that you've adopted. You, you have no right to say, oh, you really, you just don't love Jesus the way I do. Paul condemns it. And he says that these are a shadow of what was to come, and the substance is Christ. We, we read about this elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 8, where the author says, these, these things, uh, the furniture of the temple, serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. The author of Hebrews says the things that that the furniture and the temple represent is Jesus, and that Jesus is superior to all of these things. And so whether you're talking about your diet or or Sabbath or, or any kind of rest or rhythm, those things are meant to point us to Jesus. We live in a, in a world where it's very, very easy to fake photography, like to, the, the idea of Photoshopping something. We just assume every picture we see is Photoshopped, right? But there are ways when, when it's important to do so that forensic photographers can figure out if a, if a photo is fake. And one of the ways they do that is they look at the shadows, because if, if you take a bunch of different pictures and you composite them together to make a new picture to try to deceive, it's often the case that all of the elements that you are putting in have different light sources from different directions and the shadows don't match up. And so forensic photographers, they use the shadows to orient them to the source of the light. Where is the light coming from? And so as we think about these things that maybe we practice, maybe we don't, maybe they're things that we've just adopted because this is the cultural climate we live in. Maybe they're things that we've adopted because of our our reading of scripture or the the influences that we have in in the larger church. Are those things, are those shadows, are they orienting you to the source of the light? Are they pointing you to Jesus or do they point you somewhere else? promises of Jesus 
a relationship with God, forgiveness of your sins, life anew in the kingdom. All these things are based on what the author of Hebrews calls a better covenant, a covenant based on Jesus' life and death and resurrection and our simple trust in him. And there is no practice, no ritual, no habit, no rhythm of life that we can pursue that changes the status of our relationship with Christ. And to shame, and it's a shame on us if we make others feel like they don't measure up because their outward practice looks different than ours. The false teachers, they're saying, you know, you guys, you guys aren't doing it right. But some of the false teachers are saying, you know, you're not even doing it at all. Look at verse 18. Paul says, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. Paul's language here about condemnation, let no one condemn you. This is a word that, that is connected to being robbed of a prize or, or taken out of the game. Think of a, a referee disqualifying you from a sport. Don't let people remove you from your walk with Christ. How would they do that? By, by delighting in ascetic practices. Asceticism means uh, self-discipline or, or physical um, suppression of your, your uh, desires. It could also be translated false humility. The, the thing is, is the word in the text is just the word for humility. In Colossians 3.12, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks, Paul uses the same word and he tells us all to be humble. So there's something about this kind of humility that Paul doesn't like, it's some kind of disordered humility. And then he connects it, connects it to this, this idea of the worship of angels and, and visions of a uh, spiritual realm. And this is one of those things where we're, we're really far away from this and we're not really sure what he's talking about. Either, either he's talking about giving worship to angels or he's talking about worshiping alongside of angels in some kind of strange vision. Or he's talking about worshiping the way that angels worship in this visionary experience. Whatever it is exactly, these false teachers are claiming access to a reality that most people just do not have. Like they, it's, you know, maybe they're, again, maybe it's drugs, but they're having this higher religious experience where they're communing with angels and, and seeing into the heavenly realm. And we know that this is something that was talked about because again, the, the Qumran community, the people that lived in the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, they wrote about this kind of stuff, whether they were experiencing it or not, they talked about certain prophets that had visions of God's heavenly realm and all of the angels were flying around his throne. And, and we get some of that in, in scripture. If you read Ezekiel or Daniel, there's some crazy stuff in there, but it was expanded upon in the time of Paul. And the Qumran community, they were a group of Jews that, that left civilization to go live out in the desert because they were better. They were higher. They had more spiritual power than normal people because of their visionary experiences, their special revelations. And if this kind of teaching is working its way into the church at Colossae, the false teachers are saying, hey, you know what? This like following Jesus thing that you do, it's not that you're not doing it right. It's just you haven't even experienced it at all. There is a higher life. There's a better power. There's, there's something completely different. And poor Colossians, just like, gathering and singing and serving the poor and praying. Isn't that cute? I'm out here seeing visions of angels. And Paul says, these people have left the faith. He says, they aren't holding on to Jesus, the head. They aren't attached to the life-giving power of God through Christ. And his warning is, is significant. He, we cannot have connection with God through any other source than Jesus. And I mentioned this last week, but the reality is there is real spiritual power in the world 
that does not come from Christ, and it is dangerous, and it is deceptive, and it can lead us down paths of destruction. And the reason I think we need to be careful is because of this humility word, right? Like, we we are caught off guard when people appear to be Christ-like. You know, if you think of, like, um, Jafar from Aladdin, you know, the, the grand vizier who, who wants power, like, you know, nobody really thinks he might be on the up and up. Like, he's pretty clearly proud and power-hungry. Or you think about, like, Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars. I mean, granted, every, nobody saw that coming, but w- the audience does, right? We are all like, oh, yeah, he's sketchy. But that's the thing. If people are humble, if people seem to possess the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, be careful if they're accessing power that comes from a place that is not Christ. So the Colossians are being told, you, you don't, you're not doing it right. They're being judged. They're being told, you're not, you're not even connected to this spiritual power at all. And what is, what is Paul's What is Paul's response to this? He says, Christ did it for you already. Look at verse 20. If you died with Christ, the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, Paul brings up this word stoicheia again. We've seen it here and there throughout this book. There is this group of spiritual powers that Christ has defeated on the cross. And the stoicheia are part of that. And he says, these spiritual powers that are trying to rule over your hearts, one of the ways they're doing that is they're they're trying to deceive you. They're trying to get you all caught up in a bunch of things that are not connected to Christ. Paul says something similar in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Paul says that these teachers are being motivated by deceitful spirits and demons and are using what sounds holy to twist the good gifts of God into something that should be rejected. And Paul's understanding of this spiritual warfare comes from this worldview that he has that that the nations of the world have been given over to hostile spiritual powers because they rejected Yahweh. And this happens all the way back in the Tower of Babel in in Genesis. And we read about it in in Deuteronomy um, and in the Psalms. It's throughout the Old Testament. And these powers have been given authority to make these rules and regulations about how the people under their jurisdiction should live. It's interesting, if you ever read about kind of the ancestral worship practices of a variety of people around the world, many tribes and, and, and peoples will tell you that the gods that they worship, they don't really want to worship them. They don't really like them. They're kind of mean and wicked, but they're afraid of them and they have to sacrifice or do whatever the ritual of their tribe is to appease them. But in Colossians 2.15, we read, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So last week, one of the things we said was that our identity is in Christ. The things that happened to Jesus happened to us. And Paul says in verse 20 that we died with Christ. 
If you died with Christ to the elements of the world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? He says, Colossians, you are no longer a part of this system. These spiritual powers, these these false gods that are being promoted by these false teachers, you don't have anything to do with them any longer. I used to work at the the Croc Center. I worked there for a long time, and I, I, I go there to work out a few times a week, and I often run into my old coworkers. And, and the Croc Center is run by the Salvation Army, and I love the Salvation Army. They're a great organization, but they're a huge organization, and they're super uh, bureaucratic, because I think you get that big, and you just there's all kinds of systems that get developed. And so one of the things when I was working at the Croc Center was there's just always some hurdle to overcome, some some uh, you know, department head who lives on the other side of the country that you have to explain yourself to or some, some rule and some manual somewhere that you have to figure out. And so I, I bump into my, my coworkers sometimes and ask them how it's going. And, and invariably, they, inevitably, they, they tell me about some like, uh, dumb thing that they're having to fight because of the, the um, multiple layers of management in their organization. And again, I love the Salvation Army, but that's just, that's the reality of, of that organization. And I, I, I listen to them talk about how frustrated they are about whatever it is. But I don't, I don't ever feel any urge to like submit myself to those regulations. I'm not a, I'm not a part of that anymore. That, that doesn't have anything to do with me. They're still stuck in that framework, but I've been removed from it. And this is what Paul is saying to the Colossians is you don't have to submit to these regulations that you think the gods or you think these false teachers have convinced you are important or essential for life in Christ. You've died to those things. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. You are no longer a part of that world. In the death of Christ, we have died to the system of the world. We've been removed from its power structures and demands. And Paul asks, why would you put yourself back under that which Christ delivered you from? And the answer is, and this is for all of us this morning, the answer is because it sounds good. It sounds good. Remember back in verse four, Paul says, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. You meet up with somebody and they've got this this amazing spiritual regimen and they say like, you know what? If you really want to get close to God, you need to do these things. Or it's, you know, I know you read read your Bible and and you you have this community of, of faith, but like, I've got a group of people over here that we do this thing and we have this amazing experience and it's the real deal. And again, if if the arguments sounded dumb, if they sounded foolish, no one would be deceived by them. But the problem with this, this whole section, the problem that, that Paul alludes to is that none of it works. None of it makes us more holy. None of it makes us nearer to Christ. None of it connects us to Jesus because it's done for the wrong reasons. It's not connected to Christ, and it's never going to be able to do the thing that it was advertised to do. If the Colossians are going to pursue all of these activities disconnected from Jesus, then they're they're going to fail. But this brings up an interesting question because we could read this text and we could say like, you know what, you shouldn't you shouldn't celebrate Sabbath. You shouldn't ever do any kind of self-discipline-oriented practice. Paul is saying all of that kind of thing is outside the scope of what Christians should do. But the reality is, as we look at the whole of Scripture, we find that the Christian life is often marked by many of the things that Paul is speaking against here. 
So what do we do with that? I think the first thing that we gather from this passage is that these false teachers are using these things, just like we talked about with with giving flowers to your wife, using these things for the wrong reasons, for purposes that are outside the will of God, to access power and um, greatness that does not belong to them and hasn't been given to them by Christ. So how should we think about actions of self-discipline and self-denial? Because it sounds like Paul is saying, don't do anything like that. But I want to go to a couple other places this morning and and show that that's not not as simple as that. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So the question for us is, are are we mastered by things? Are we mastered by good things? You know, I just can't help but eat too much. Always at community group because the food is so good. I only need one bowl. I always eat two. And then I feel sick. I just can't help myself. Or maybe, you know, maybe you just need a drink every night after work. It's just become the thing that I just got to, it's how I wind down. Or maybe you're like, you know, I never rest. I work all the time, but, you know, it's my Enneagram number. That's, that's all I can say. Are there things in your life that you have allowed yourself to be mastered by? Here's Paul again in 1 Corinthians 9. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says, I discipline my body. The the word is... um, comes from a word in Greek that means to give someone a black eye. It's part of his boxing metaphor. So somehow Paul believes that actively doing things to his body to make it uncomfortable will aid him in his work with Christ, work for Christ. But then Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he? In Luke 9, he says, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. How does Jesus describe self-denial? By voluntary execution. Take up your cross is just a cute phrase that we we have in the church, but when Jesus said it, it it would have sounded like sit in your electric chair. And this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus models for us in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is praying to the Father and saying, not my will, but your will be done. In some sense, in some way, there was a moment where Jesus was like, I don't really want to do that. Dark, terrible, painful thing, but I'm going to do that in obedience. Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you want to fast, he says, when you fast. Like there's this expectation that followers of Christ are going to have a rhythm of fasting in their lives, just like a rhythm of prayer in that same section. And if you're listening to this and and, and the idea of deliberately skipping a meal for the sake of spiritual development sounds crazy to you, I'm sorry for that because the American church has really failed us here. We're part of a, a, a small movement in the 20th and the 21st century that's almost completely forgotten about this practice of self-discipline. 
And Jesus isn't saying, if you're, if you're confused, he's not saying that if somebody finds out that you're fasting, now, now you've somehow done it wrong. He's saying that you shouldn't be bragging about your fasting, which is just what Paul was saying in Colossians. Do one more. This is 1 Corinthians 7. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another. He's talking about sexual intimacy. Except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, Paul envisions a married couple that from time to time deliberately choose celibacy in order to strengthen their prayer lives. Did they teach that at the last marriage conference you went to? So there's obviously a place for various kinds of self-discipline throughout the scriptures. But self-discipline has absolutely nothing to do with our status in Christ. And this is what Paul is speaking out against in Colossians. We are saved by grace through faith. And the minute that we think that our deeds have anything to do with that, we're straying from the gospel. So why might we want to be people who hold on to the head, who look to the substance Christ and still practice Self-discipline, what what would be the purpose of that? Well, I'll give you two. The first one is that self-discipline is worship. The reality is, is we live in a world of absolute plenty, right? Even if you're here and you feel like it's paycheck to paycheck, the simplest clothing, the most basic food, this is all stuff that would have been the stuff of royalty 2,000 years ago. Think of all the things happening just right now in this room that are just amazing. Like, I don't have to yell at you because I've got this like grain of rice-sized microphone on my cheek. We've got all this electrical equipment that's projecting the sound into the room. Many of you got coffee this morning. Think Think about coffee. It's this plant that grows like in a completely different place in the world, thousands of miles away. And they, they harvest it and they they dry it and they bag it up and they put it on giant ships and it goes all the way across the world to American ports. And then it's purchased and it's roasted and it's ground and it's brewed. And with all of those little steps, Spencer can afford to give it to us for free every week. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Thank you, Spencer. Most of this little, this little downtown church building, most of us don't live downtown. Many of you drove miles to get here this morning. And you didn't think anything of it because you just always drive miles to get anywhere. We are, we are blind to the huge amount of abundance that we exist in every single day. Paul's warning to the Colossians is that against thinking that by subjecting ourselves to discomfort, we will gain access to salvation. In that regard, self-discipline can be dangerous. It can be tempting to think that you're better or holier or you've got it figured out and others don't. But also comfort can be tempting too. We have so much that we can rely on. We don't really need to rely on Jesus. Some of us have so much money that even if we lost our jobs, we've got six months or so to figure it out. Give us this day our daily bread is a prayer that most of us probably never have to pray. So I want to I share a little bit from John Piper. I know some of you are big John Piper fans. Some of you are not. That's okay. I think this is really helpful. He says, delights, pleasures are given for two reasons. One, to be experienced and then offered up in worship through thanks. And the other is to be surrendered and replaced with God. 
See, we can get really excited about being profoundly blessed. And one of the things, if you know John Piper, one of the things that he has talked about for many, many years is this idea of, of recognizing your blessings from God and turning them back to him in thankfulness and worship. But the question is, do we do that? Do we see everything that we have as this amazing blessing from God? And then do we give it back to him in worship? But he says, that's one way to use the things that we have for worship. The other way is to give them up, to not have them, and then recognize that Christ is what I really need. Let God's goodness and his grace and his presence in our lives replace what we think we need. And in John's gospel, Jesus is is talking with the woman at the well uh, in Samaria, And the disciples have gone into town to get food. And he has this conversation with her and the disciples come back with the food. And Jesus, they they start talking about this food and, and Jesus says this, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Earlier in in a very famous passage in in the desert when Jesus is being tempted, he says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in Jesus' mind, this idea of, of taking something that we need, something that might be good and setting it aside to be replaced by the presence of God himself is a way of worship. It's another quote from John Piper. This is probably about 20 20 years old, but he says, I'm more inclined today at age 58, watching my life and its ease and the way I've labored to turn pleasures into worship. I'm more convinced than ever that I need asceticism in my life with all of its risks and dangers, because I think in my experience, I am more likely to be deceived right now that I am leaning on God when I'm leaning on a retirement or my wife or a successful pastorate than any other danger. I therefore feel like I need some conscious self-denials to put myself to the test and see whether I get angry or irritable or fretful by not having something I want so bad every day or every week. It might be sex, it might be food, it might be approval. Wherever I am leaning on pleasure and then saying, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, it's worship here, when really it's idolatry. And so Piper says, for the sake of the strength of his relationship with Christ, not for his status as a Christian, not for the hope that he has, but for his sanctification, combined with the life of pleasure that he leads as an American, it is necessary for him to worship Christ through self-discipline. Not to earn his salvation or put God in his debt or gain access to secret knowledge, but to simply practice making Christ his everything. It's a question for us, is is Christ your everything? Is he the source of your life? Is he the center? What happens if you don't eat for a day? It's likely that in this culture, unless you stop eating on purpose, you will never know. You might try it and find out that something else is your everything, like burritos. And so throughout the New Testament, we are encouraged not to put God in our debt, not to manipulate Christ, not to make ourselves feel better than other people, but to practice self-discipline for the sake of worship. And secondly, self-discipline, I think, makes us more human Matthew 26, we read, then he came, Jesus, to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is going to be betrayed. He is going to be arrested. He is going to be beaten and crucified and die for my sin and your sin And that night, he's asking his best friends to stay up and pray with him. And he goes off into the distance 
and prays and he comes back and finds them all asleep. And he, he kind of rebukes them. He says, come on, you guys, just stay awake an hour. But he says, the spirit is willing. There is a, there's a part of you I know that really wants to be here with me. But the flesh, your body is weak. Jesus points out that there is a disconnect between our inner life and our outer life. The moment that we are born, we have zero self-control, right? All of you with little babies know this. There's, there's, it's just crying, right? Like, why are you crying? It, maybe they don't know. All they know is something's wrong and I want something. And I need it. I need it fixed now, right? And so we grow in self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. It's something that the spirit of God puts into us. But how does that spirit grow? How does the fruit of that spirit grow? By partnering with God in the actual pursuit of holiness. This is why we, we have all of these lists of things that we should be doing in the scriptures, not to make us Christians, not to make us better, not to earn our salvation, but because we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And this is one of the ways that this happens. Callistos Ware, who's an Eastern Orthodox theologian, says this, asceticism has a positive object. It seeks not to undermine, but to transform the body, rendering it a willing instrument of the spirit, a partner instead of an opponent. I like that. Is your body your partner in your pursuit of Christ, or is it your opponent? Is your spirit willing and your flesh weak? Turns out there's all of these practices in scripture that are designed to bring your body into alignment with the will of your spirit. So the question in this text for all of us is, have we been deceived into thinking that we can find approval from Christ through things that are outside of Christ? If we go looking for truth and enlightenment and power outside of Christ, what will we find? Paul says destruction. Or have we, have we added to the grace of God with self-discipline? Do we, do we practice Sabbath? Do we fast? Do we recycle? Whatever, whatever quasi-spiritual practice you want to hold, do you feel like that just makes you a little bit better than everybody? Does that make you a little closer to God? Or do we recognize that we have been saved by grace, by God's gift for us? Have we replaced faith in Christ with worldly forms of power overseen by rules and regulations from the elements of this world? Or are we pursuing Jesus and practicing the kinds of things that he wants to, us to use to conform us to his image? Are we walking in humility are we walking in camaraderie with one another? Are we walking in, in grace and, and gladness for each other as we're all in different places as we journey with Jesus together? That's the kind of community that we should strive to be. As we all hold on to the head who is Christ. So, we're going to take communion like we always do. Communion is one of those things. It's, it's one of those um, physical practices. If, you're, if you've been a church person for a long time, it just is what we do. But if you're, if you're new to the experience of following Christ, like what, what is the point of this? Why do we do this? It's a physical practice that Jesus has designed to help us remember who he is. Remember what he's done for us. And so by coming up here in a few moments and taking the bread and the cup, you are acknowledging to everyone in the room that you died with Christ. You identify with Jesus in his death.
Jesus says, this is my body broken for you when he's talking about the bread. He says, this is my blood poured out when he's talking about the cup. And if you are a Christian, that life that was given up on the cross is now the life that you participate in. And Paul says that you died with Christ. You are no longer connected to the powers of this world. You are no longer connected to the expectations, the rules, the rituals, the formulas, the false worship that this world demands. You live in a different kingdom, a kingdom with different rules, different standards, different joys. So I invite you to come up as we sing and take the bread and the cup, the body and blood of Jesus, and think through what it means to have died with Christ. What are the things that you are believing? What are the things that you are holding on to, the messages from the outside, or maybe messages that you've learned in the church that are disconnected from Christ? That you think, man, I have to do this or God's not going to be happy with me. I have to be this way. Ask the Spirit of God to show you those things. Show you places where you're actually living in bondage to the elements of the world. And let him release you from those things. And conversely, if you find that your your spiritual life and your physical life are out of congruence, there's tools for that in God's Word. There are ways that Jesus has laid out for his people to live in order to participate with him in the transformation of our bodies. And those sorts of things are available to us in Christ. One of the things that I often mention is that during communion, as we worship, the prayer rugs are available down here. And that's not some weird thing. It's just an opportunity to get out of your seat Change the posture of your body as you commune with the Lord. And it's often that just the act of changing the posture of your body does something that that helps you pray. And so I would invite you, if you feel led, to come up and kneel as you take communion, as we sing. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.